Okay, welcome to another episode of the Radical Parenting Podcast. I'm joined today by Dana Martin, author of Raising Rebels. Let's take a peek at that. Parenting advice from the girl your parents warned you about. Thank you for joining us, Dana. I really enjoyed your book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You published it a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, in 2020. Yeah. And, uh, and you started a, a Facebook group, which I've also been a member of for about a year or so, a Radical Unschooling, correct? Yes. Yep. I yeah. started that back in 2011. Awesome. So we're going to get into like the specifics of your book. But before I get started, I wanted to ask, did all of this just kind of come naturally to you? Was it aligned with how, how you were raised and just kind of your life you know, approach? Or, or were there some inspirations for you that, that, that had you realize you wanted to raise your children in this in this way that isn't just the norm or or isn't too mainstream. Um, I wasn't raised this way. No, I um I, I gave birth to my first child uh, in 1999, and when I gave birth to him, it was a life changing experience. I had no idea I was capable of of giving birth naturally, and that changed my life. And I wanted to help other people achieve that, other women that were desiring that. And when I began parenting, I got a lot of advice that was very controlling um, in the sense of telling me not to hold my baby too much, to make sure I let him cry, to feed him on a schedule, you know, all these things that went against my instinct. And I remember making the choice to trust my child and listen to what he was telling me. And I was rejected by a lot of family and friends for not taking their parenting advice, but I continued to do so. And this philosophy just extended from what felt really naturally to me. So I didn't learn it anywhere. Um, as I went on in my journey, I found other people that were parenting from a peaceful, natural perspective. But yeah, it just evolved as I became a mother. Awesome. And do you have any other now like authors or other kind of like parenting uh, coaches or anything that you that you really particularly admire or steer people towards? Um, yeah, I mean, I really like uh, Alfie Cohen. Uh, mm -hmm. Peter Gray. I really mm -hmm. like him. He's spoken at events that I've run before. Mm -hmm. um, there's a We've lot of people that have inspired me. Podcast. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I gained inspiration from a lot of unique places, but um, yeah, they, they were my two biggest. Cool. Yeah. I, I, I thought of Peter Gray several times while you were, while I was reading your book. Mm. Okay. Well, let's just jump into it. And then I've got some, some questions at the end. Um, uh, I just saw, uh, I have the worst like time wasting habit of watching like reels on like Instagram or something like that. Mm -hmm. I got one a couple days ago that said like something about like next time you're like frustrated with your kids, imagine you're like 80 years old or something like that. And you have a chance to like go back to this moment that you're like so frustrated with your kids. Mm -hmm. And this is like the only moment you get to have with them. Uh, I, I really like that reel. And it kind of reminded me of the like sentiment throughout your book. The first chapter is called mess. And you come back to this topic kind of a few times, but it's just kind of like your framework or your kind of perspective on, on the mess that is inherent in, in raising kids. Let's just start there. Talk to me a little bit about that. Oh yeah. So <laughs> I was raised by a mother who was a clean freak you know, and our house was like a museum as many people's homes are. It was like a museum of our things. 
Mm-hmm. And when I had kids and I started parenting this way, you know, I had four kids um, under the age of, I think, nine and three of which were in diapers and it was just chaos. And I realized that I wanted our home to be used differently with a different intention than how I was raised. Instead of it being a museum of our things, I wanted it to be a workshop of our interests. And so when you take that little perspective shift, you can relax a little bit around the cleanliness of the home. I mean, I love a clean, organized home, don't get me wrong, but my children's need to explore and learn and grow is just as important as my need for cleanliness and organization. So when I took into consideration their needs as much as my own, I needed to find a balance and let go of the perfectionism (laughs) that I was raised with. Yeah, cool. How old are your kids now? Uh, my youngest is 15, uh, a son. I have a daughter, mm-hmm. Ivy, who's 18, a daughter, Tiffany, who's 21, and a son, Devin, who's turning 24 in two days. Cool, cool. I'll be interested to hear a little bit more about how they turned out. But before we hear that, <laughs> I want to talk more about like all the all the ways that you raise them that um, everyone's so afraid, you know, that they're going to turn out horribly in one way or another. So yeah. Um, I don't know really which chapter, you know, you have so many different chapters and you hit on a lot of like issues. I really liked, um, you had several chapters about, about eating, you had several chapters about like bedtime and sleeping. Um, so let's just talk about like your approach. Well, let's do an overall kind of like the overall philosophy of, of raising rebels. Um, and you know, it's, it's also a book that's largely about, about unschooling. Um, and I would say taking the unschooling kind of ethos even further than the more popular, you know, we've, we've reviewed A.S. Neal and John Holt and Lawrence Genesee and, and Peter Gray and several other people that promote unschooling. And I would say that your book and your philosophy takes, takes this idea of trusting your child and this idea of kind of like non-interference. That's not a phrase you use, but this, this idea of, yeah, trusting your child and following their lead. <clears throat> further than any of them. So you want to first just kind of introduce the the ethos and philosophy? Sure. Traditional parenting is based in what's called the authoritarian paradigm. And that's where the parents' needs generally come before the child's in the way that they go about things. So the parents' needs for quiet, uninterrupted sleep, obedience and compliance, and above all, behavior modification. So behavior modification is a huge focus of mo- most parenting books. And Rarely does it take into account um, a partnership perspective. And so this philosophy is about a partnership-based paradigm where the focus is on the needs of everybody in the family equally. And I don't have never focused on my child's behavior or controlling them. I focused on the needs under the be- their behavior. Now, when you do that, it's amazing the behavior does change. It becomes, <laughs> you know, when you're in a cooperative space, things become much easier. They flow better. And so it's, it's also a philosophy based in freedom and letting go of control and fear, which takes a lot of time. It's, it's not an easy process for parents, but the rewards when you focus on the relationship instead of the role of controlling and training and, and all of that that goes with traditional parenting, the rewards are that your, your child really trusts you. And when you have a good foundation and a great relationship, you're very influential in their lives when you give them information. So my kids have never had control or limits with most things that parents control and limit. However, they found really great balance with things. So some things being technology, bedtimes, food, they've always had the freedom to use as much technology as they wanted. 
which I know is really controversial. It's something that comes up a lot. This doesn't mean that it's a permissive, neglectful approach. It's a very involved, hands-on approach, giving lots of information, being present with your child above all else. So it's moving away from punishments and rewards um, and stepping more into you know, trusting your child and working with them and being present. Great. So I do want to talk more specifically and even maybe challenge a little bit around like technology and things like that before, but before we do that, I really want to get just like steeped in the philosophy. And I think a lot of the podcasts that we do, you know, Kara and I and other, other hosts in some essence, we're almost like preaching a little bit to the choir because I think, I think someone who just believes like, kind of like Leviathan, Machiavelli, Lord of the Flies, kind of like this Catholic idea that like, we're all just like born sinners and we need the institutions of like, whatever we need these institutions of religion or of school or of, or of government or something like that to, to keep us in line. They're just not going to raise kids that way. And this way, and the way that, you know, any, any of the books that we reviewed on this podcast, especially yours, I'm, I guess I'm kind of curious if you have any if you were trying to like convince someone that like most of us, if not all of us are inherently good, most of us want to maximize joy and minimize suffering for not just ourselves, but for everybody <clears throat> that children can be trusted to like make the right choices. How, like, how did you come about that? Were you raised Catholic? Were you, <laughs> were yeah. you, you know, like how, how did you come about this idea that like your kids and hopefully most kids and all ki if not all kids are just like inherently good. You don't have to like control them and, and BF Skinner them to be good. Yeah. And college, I went to college for early childhood education and I took a human development uh, class. And I, so I was deep into learning about all of that. And none of it really rang true for me when I was learning about that whole mindset. And so I began to challenge uh, my own preconceived ideas surrounding that. And much of the approach that I've had has been intuitive. And I know it's not for everybody, but for me, I could see the goodness in my child. I could feel it. I could see it. It was something tangible for me. So it wasn't a philosophical perspective change as much as it was that true connection that I had with my baby and the innocence and the trust and the love. And as they grew, I could feel it. You know, I could feel their intention. And I think that's a, a really big piece of this because much of traditional parenting is assuming negative intent not just from kids. I mean, people have that just in life in general, mm -hmm. the assuming negative intent. And this philosophy really focuses on assuming positive intent. And so maybe it's more of an optimistic perspective, mm -hmm. you know, that the glass is half full where you're assuming positive intent. And I've always held the belief that my children are doing the best they can with what they know at the time based on other issues that might be going on if they're tired or hungry, of course, they're not going to be at their best any more than I am. So it's a, it's an approach of assuming positive intent and, and trusting your children and that, and yourself, awesome. I mean, trusting yourself above all else, because I feel like a lot of parents know this, they feel this deep down with their babies. And much like me, I was being told, don't hold them too much. He'll manipulate you. He'll cry and just want to be held and manipulate, manipulate you. And that, never rang true for me. I'm looking at this innocent newborn thinking there's no way he's thinking, haha, I can manipulate this person to do what I want. And I always shut out those voices and listen to my heart. A lot of the, I mean, a little bit in the book and a lot in some of the other books we review, you talk a little bit about the self-work that is necessary to, to like raise a child this way. And as you were just talking, it just occurred to me how much 
you know, how many of us are raised to not really trust ourselves, not really love ourselves, not really express ourselves fully. And, and then how just like projection is kind of just all there is, you know, we, we always project what we feel about ourselves onto others. And so it does occur to me that maybe like a first step in, in raising a child this way is, is just learning to kind of like accept and love yourself and trust yourself. Like you just said, any, any, any thoughts, your book doesn't go too much into this on like the practice or, or work that, that helps a parent do that, know themselves, love themselves, accept themselves. Yeah. I think as you go on, if you began, begin this journey, I know for me, it was from the beginning, but it was like, it kept reinforcing itself because I would listen to myself and then be responsive to my child and see the positive feedback loop that was happening, which further reinforced my trust in myself. And I could see my children thriving and I could see that they were learning and growing. And so that process was this reinforcement that you're on the right track. And, but the inner work necessary, I think has to do with healing from our own upbringing. And, uh, that that's a big piece of it for a lot of people is healing from your own childhood and making peace with your parents doing the best they can with what they knew at the time also. And, um, you know, the, the process is ongoing. I'm still growing. I'm still learning. I'm still, you know, on the journey with all of it. And how have you in your life, and especially as you were an early parent, uh, worked on healing from your upbringing, forgiving your parents, forgiving yourself? That's a really great question. It's so many things. I mean, just my continuous evolution is touched not only on parenting, but everything in my life. You know, freeing myself of realizing that I could make a living doing what I love in various, you know, capacities and that we don't need to be living a life, taking orders and living a life of drudgery, doing what we're supposed to do. We can, you know, expand and grow through pursuing our passions. And, you know, I've, I've read a lot, I've attended a lot of, you know, seminars over the years and the inner work is more you know, finding those answers within myself uh, to the questions that I've had my whole life. And that really has to do with, um, you know, I was raised uh, Christian. I was raised Baptist. And my parents didn't go to church, but I went with my grandmother. And while my grandmother would take me to church and I was learning all of, you know, these concepts, they would be home being wild and partying. So I had this huge contrast in people that I loved experiencing two totally different lifestyles and so me finding my way with all of that um, and realizing that a lot of parents and a lot of adults have a do as I say, not as I do attitude. And that really, I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to live an authentic life with my children. So um, the vulnerability and authenticity that comes hand in hand with this parenting um, is something that's been very healing as well. Cool. <sighs> all right. Well, let's get more into the, into the topics of the, of the book. Um, so chapter eight is called eat. And there are a few chapters where you talk about, about wasted food. You talk about this kind of like put upon this that some moms and parents have about cooking the different, you know, four different meals for four different kids or, or, or whatever, um, and eating when they want and how much they want all of that. So just a quick broad overview of your, of your take on, on eating. Sure. Yeah. I was raised, um, part of the clean your plate club. I don't know if anybody else was, but you sat at the table until you finished your plate. Mm -hmm. And oh my gosh, it just made mealtime so treacherous for me because I was a really picky eater and there was no say whatsoever. 
and um, <laughs> what was for dinner. Now, I know times were different back then. You know, the, the variety of foods that we have now that are available at cheap prices and, and things weren't present then. But I can remember just getting so out of tune with my own bodily needs being raised like that. And my mother did the best she could. You know, she really did. But I can remember didn't matter if I was hungry or not hungry. I needed to do what I was told, which, you know, led me down a path of eating disorders like throughout my life and um, being overweight and then having anorexia and the dysfunction that came from that I really reflected on when I had kids. And I told myself that I would always give them the option. I would trust them, you know, extend that same trust and freedom. And I also didn't mind making different things for kids because I didn't, I, I didn't see the point in forcing them to eat things they didn't like. I would introduce them to a lot of different foods, but every meal that I made, and even today that I make, I make sure that there's at least one thing that everybody likes. <laughs> so it's kind of buffet style sometimes. Um, yeah, I I was raised that way too. I remember there's some line in your book where you just like talk about having the pride of seeing your children like stop eating when they're done. <laughs> like it's so simple and every child is programmed to just stop eating when they're full but it is still like a revelation for some of us like me you know if the food is there like i'll finish it it's just like so programmed into me oh yeah and like one example is i'm like addicted and for five years i've been making my own like healthy grapefruit seltzer and i've probably drank a thousand bottles of it and a woman i've been dating uh she'll come over and she'll drink like you know, she'll open one, she'll drink like three sips of it or dr open one and drink like half of it. And I told her the other day, like, I've probably drank 2000 bottles of this over the past five years. And I've never once left a single drop, <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. I drink as, as much as is in the bottle. And it's like, yeah, with her, I imagine there's a, there's a greater attunement with just like her body, like my body wants this much. And then, yeah, I'll leave the rest. And yeah, from an ecological standpoint, I do still feel like yeah, I have learned, you know, food waste is like the number one contributor to, to global warming and all the effort and work that goes into creating food. And so I, I'm always looking for different things. And one of the best uh, like advice that I've seen is, and it was from a group, I don't know if it was from your Facebook group or another one of the similar Facebook groups, but a mom said that she has like a savory and a sweet bucket in her freezer <laughs> so every time there's anything that's not finished that's like savory she puts in this bucket and then like twice a week she takes that stuff puts it in the food processor with a couple eggs blends it up and makes um like veggie burgers out of like anything any vegetables anything that they've eggs whatever they haven't eaten and that's like one of her ways so i like the idea of coming up with a way to if you really do like adhere to not wasting food, finding a way to do that, that doesn't involve creating eating disorders for your kids or forcing oh, them to do something they don't want to do. Yeah. Well, you want them to stay in tune with what feels healthy and what feels best for them. So it's about giving information. Like if there's something new, I might, you know, share, just take a little bit of that and why don't you try it first and make sure you don't, you know, you like it or don't like it. And letting the kids just take a little bit and then take, you know, more if they like it and, and kind of navigating it like that. But yeah, food waste has never been a problem in my house. I've always, I, I kind of know that I'll be eating where I did when they were younger. I'd probably be eating half of what's on somebody's plate that they don't finish. Mm -hmm. So I would kind of hold back a little bit and, or put it in the fridge for the next day. I had no problem eating leftovers for lunch. In fact, it's yeah. less cooking. <laughs> so. And you talked about one of your daughters too, just like always kind of over serving herself, her eyes being bigger than her stomach and her like kind of like feeling 
just like joy from having this abundance of food in front of her. I love, yeah, I love that. that. She's still like that. And it's so funny because you get to know your kids and, you know, she'll, we'll get takeout or something like once a week and she'll always want to get so much. And I know she's not going to finish it to this day. Mm -hmm. So I, (laughs) I just, I order like one tiny thing for myself and I always joke with her about it. I said, I'll be finishing that for you. Yeah, I do. Nice. All right. Another chapter is bedtime and you have quite a few about sleep and bedtime. Um, I think this is chapter, yeah, 15 is bedtime, 19 is sleep. You have a few on this topic. Um, And this is a unique, uh, you know, this has been an issue for me. My son's three years old and it's, it's a, it's a point of contention between his mother and and I, and I haven't found a lot of people that have your exact same perspective on this. Um, But I really, I really like it. Um, so yeah, talk, talk, talk a little bit about your perspective on bedtime, bedtime routines and sleeping. Well, my kids have always had the freedom to go to sleep when they're ready. Um, the younger ones always wanted to go to bed when I went to bed, but we, we always co-slept, um, co-slept in a way that everybody was comfortable and had plenty of room because I think a lot of people that choose safe co-sleeping, their bed's not big enough and then they're uncomfortable because they're getting kicked in the back or, or whatever. And they blame the co-sleeping instead of their lack of space. So that was always really important to me. At one point, we had two queen beds pushed together in a twin, so everybody had room. Um, having a box fan or a noise machine in the room to drown out any extra noise was always important. But my younger kids would always go to bed when I went to bed, usually, because they wanted to be with me. The older ones would stay up later, and it was kind of great because with four kids, the individual one-on-one time that you have with them is, is kind of rare. So mm-hmm. I loved that at nighttime, the little ones would be up with me and I'd read to them or... We'd, we'd cuddle and, and chat or, you know, that my younger ones could be with their dad and I mean, excuse me, the older ones could be with their dad and watch a TV show or connect in that way. So, and also waking up in the morning, the little ones would wake up with me and the older ones would sleep in. So you'd have the individual time. That was really nice. Mm-hmm. But we also, even though we never had like a strict schedule of any kind, we had a rhythm to our day. And so we'd go up and get ready for bed together, you know, depending upon the age of the kids, the older ones would be in their rooms or whatever. And yeah, so it just always worked out. It was it's so funny because it was a non-issue. When I wrote about bedtimes and sleep, it was never a problem for me that I was writing about. And people were always fascinated because it's one of the biggest things that people bring up. Bedtimes yeah. are a struggle and this is a struggle. And it just never was for me. I think because I never got locked in a power struggle with anybody. And I always just would go with the flow. And I know not everybody has the ability to do that. If you're a working parent and you have to get a certain amount of sleep and go to bed at a certain time or your child's in school, I know it's much more challenging. So I honor the fact that um, I was fortunate enough to be able to have a flexible sleep schedule myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of parents and a lot of like parenting authors even have said like children really thrive with, they really need the structure. They really need whatever. Yeah. I personally believe and even have you know, had some authors on this podcast, developmental psychologists that think that's more for the parents, that mm. the children will fall into their own cycle. And I think probably the author that's close, most closely aligned with your perspective on this is Brad Blanton, who wrote the book Radical Parenting. And his his theory is just like, children are programmed through millions of years t- to want to sleep. They're going to sleep mm-hmm. just fine if you don't like get in the way of it. They're programmed through millions of years to want to eat and drink. And if you just don't like, yeah, mess it up, mm-hmm. they're going to, they're going to eat healthily. They're going to, they're going to drink healthily. They're going to sleep healthily. Yeah. yeah it's the uh, control that gets in the way of all these things. I agree. 
You know, as if you're trying to control the schedule and control everything, kids really just naturally want freedom above all else, just like any human being. And so if they feel unfree or controlled, some highly sensitive kids more than others, you know, will really push up against that. And that will remove them from their natural uh, intuitive, you know, sleep cycle. It really will. They'll push for that freedom above all else, even if they're tired. And so then they're, then their sleeps, their sleeping is all, you know, out of whack and parents struggle with it. So letting go of control, trusting them, letting go of fear, <laughs> which is a big one. Uh, kids just naturally want to sleep and it's never been a negative association for them ever. It was always positive. They love to go to bed. They yeah. loved when it was time to go up together or if the yeah. other ones could stay up. So it was all, when you have the positive association, it's a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, for people who do struggle with sleep, I, I, I really felt so relieved when I finally did this. And for me, there were custody issues that were kind of causing problems and stuff. So it complicated it. But when I was able to finally just like let him sleep when he wanted to sleep, uh, the first clue I got of that was like really early on before he was even one year old, I just knew he didn't want to go to bed when I was putting him to bed. And so finally on new year's Eve, when he was like 10 months old, I had this excuse. We can stay up all night long. We can watch, we can watch, movies we can stay up all night long because it's new year's eve and that was the first night that he just like totally just fell asleep like like 10 minutes after his bedtime and yeah Mm. it was it was that was a bit of an eye-opener for me yeah all right so your next uh the next chapter i want to talk about is chapter 17 this one's called mean girls i think this is the one where you talk about your daughters having that time alone at the mall Mm -hmm. yeah uh I don't even really remember, but this is the only point in your book where I remember like tears coming to my eyes and I just felt like really proud of, of them. And just like, yeah, this, this, it felt a little bit like a vindication of your, of your, of your parenting approach. So talk to us a little bit about that chapter and, and, and what it meant to you. Yeah, we were in England visiting my mother and we went to a mall and it was my daughter, uh, Tiffany and her friend who she grew up with. And um, I took them both on this trip and they wanted to go off on their own. And so they did. And these girls went up to them and started calling them names. Um, It was kind of a tough area of England where we were and just being really bullying. And the girls didn't really react. They, you know, didn't, they weren't triggered in the space, nor did they believe that what the girls were saying were true. Where they're, they've never been conditioned to, have that level of self-doubt within themselves. They, they just felt bad for the girls really, and just walked away instead of engaging. Uh, the girls followed them and it ended up being a kind of intense situation for them. But the way that they got out of it was just to be peaceful and to not engage. And I think when your child's self-esteem is intact, which is tough during the teen years, it yeah. really is. when your child's self-esteem is intact, they're not as triggered or reactive when somebody's calling them names. Now, this is something I had no clue about until I lived it with my children, because as I've gone on, I've seen the results of this and have written about it going, wow, this is fascinating, you know, and to see how peaceful they were and how it didn't really affect them. It, it brought me to tears because I was in those situations. But when a girl, a teen, you know, another teen was bullying me and said something to me, I believed them. Yeah. I thought I was those things. And yeah. that in itself was so damaging. Now, you know, that happens when children are conditioned to be people pleasers. And when you're in the authoritarian paradigm with controlling and punishing um, and wanting certain behavior from your child, 
you know, these side effects happen that are really negative with well-intentioned parents. They just do the, the it affects a child's self-esteem. They're not sure of themselves. And so yeah, to they, see they how learn sure... to trust what other people say and other people's judgment right. and perspective more than their own. Exactly. And so I was blown away myself with how little value they put into these names. They, you know, told me after the fact, like it, these girls must've had a really hard life. You know, why were they treating other people that way? And my daughter, Tiffany said, you know, they must have been really hurt themselves. Somebody must have been mean to them. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a perspective I never had, <laughs> ever. Mm-hmm. I would just hide from the bullies or, you know, try to find a bigger kid to go stand up for me. But it was a very self-focused perspective I had at that age. But I later realized it was because I was conditioned to be self-focused. Because when you're controlling a child and rewarding and punishing and focused on behavior, it makes a child look inward of all the time at just how their behavior is affecting their freedom and other, you know, other people to, you know, feel that love within themselves. When you're parenting this way, I found that when you're focused on everybody's needs mattering equally in the partnership paradigm that I talked about, children really, really do learn that not, it's not about just themselves. It's about everybody. And so my kids worldview has always been on everybody, not just themselves. Like many of us were as a means of survival. And so I could see it in that situation. Yeah, that was powerful. Great. I loved what you mentioned in that chapter too, about, I don't think a lot of people realize this, that, yeah, like you've said it here too, that when you do get like an insult or you do get a criticism from someone, the ones that sting the most are the ones that you, at least some part of you believes and doesn't really doesn't want to believe. And when, yeah, someone criticizes you and criticizes you in a way that like, none of you agrees with none of you thinks is true or could be true it's just absurd it's just like confusing and absurd it's not embroiling like like so many of the insults i've received in life have been Mm. yeah Yeah. cool um you get into a lot more of um schooling stuff in the second half of the book uh like memorization and and yeah, I think this stuff is pretty obvious, but it's just getting so much more obvious, like what value there is in memorizing things when like we all have all, you know, at the tip of our fingertips, we have access to any of the things that any of us would have ever memorized. Um, so yeah, uh, anything you just want to say generally about unschooling, uh, and about yeah your 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 qualms with the traditional schooling approach well the focus on taking tests and memorization and basically trying to fill children with all this knowledge that they may need someday is utterly flawed you know all of my kids have learned what they've needed to learn as they've needed to learn it and that's how all human beings learn and so um unschooling is really different in that um There's no such thing as forced learning. Now, a lot of people with kids in school or a traditional approach, they really confuse learning with forced learning. Now, most children in school do not want to be learning what they're being forced to learn. And so they're they're memorizing things, memorizing facts and basically just obeying, doing what they're told, all for the sake of their own freedom, because they want good grades so they can do what they want with their time, what little of it they have. And with unschooling, it's based on interest-driven learning and self-directed learning. So when children want to learn something, the parent is in the role of the learning facilitator, not the teacher. So I'm never standing in front of them, pouring knowledge into them as the all-knowing authority. It's more of a facilitation of if they show interest in something, 
bringing as many resources into their lives to learn and grow from based on whatever they're into at the time. And so it's a very hands-on approach in that way. And um, it's a very joy-based approach. So my kids have never been forced to learn anything they didn't want to learn. And a lot of people would think, how are they prepared for the real world if you don't do that? Well, we're not all meant to learn the same things in life. And the idea that every child needs to learn the same curriculum is wrong. Um, children learn what they need to um, in their own expansion and growth. And it's a very trust-based approach, I realize. But having raised you know, my children this way, I see the value in it. And not just my children, but thousands and thousands of other kids so I know hundreds of grown unschoolers and none of them turned out like anybody ever told me they would, you know, early on. They're yeah. all really passionate, unique individuals pursuing things they love with careers that they take a lot of joy in. And so the philosophy definitely is different in that way, because I think we're under the idea that that learning needs to be a struggle, but it doesn't ever. That's a big difference. And not that this. This isn't a good sample size, but what, tell, tell me what your two oldest kids are up to now. Okay. Yeah. My son, Devin, he, um, he does, he's doing a lot right now. He um, has a nursery that he runs his own nursery and he's also managing a tractor supply store. He's very involved in his church. And so he's doing a lot of work there. He is in a place in his life where he is, he's always expanding and growing. He's also a blacksmith. So he, he's multi-professioned, which I think is really interesting. And a lot of unschoolers are, and I am, I mean, many of us are today. So the idea of what are you going to be when you grow up, that is so outdated. You know, our kids are earning money and, and growing and having careers, a lot of different things at once. And so my son has always been in that space. And so he's multi-professioned doing things Great. he enjoys. And your oldest daughter? My daughter, Tiffany, she is a model. She's into, into that, which is so out of the range of what I <laughs> ever knew would happen with one of my kids. But, you know, she's, uh, she, she manages her career herself. And she is, out of all my kids, it's funny because all my kids love technology growing up except her. Mm. She never used it. She never gamed. She never, you know, used technology of any kind. And now she is the only one with a career based in that. <laughs> so mm. it's fascinating to me. Um, but she, she's the brand manager and she, you know, sponsors different brands. She is doing all multi-professioned also. She helps me with my business. Actually, she, I run a skincare business. And so she's my right hand woman. She handles all of the, the skincare line with me. She helps promote it. She does all my social media. So she is in partnership with me and my business. Um, and also doing her own thing on the side. Cool. All right, I'm going to skip forward to chapter 23 is uh, child advocacy in public. So this is an issue I think a lot of us deal with, especially those of us that are more in this like trusting and like wanting children to be free, autonomous humans, not oppressed like second class citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, so talk to us a little bit about your kind of like approach and like what happens inside of you and how you react when you see children out in the world that are yeah, in, in your view, I mean, you didn't use these words, but I'll use them being oppressed. Well, my journey with this is really interesting because in the beginning, I can remember I was on my way back from England. I spoke there at the first ever unschooling conference in London. So it was like this big deal. And I brought my whole family and the kids must have been like one, four, six and eight or something. And on the way back, there was a mother sitting in front of us whose little one must have been 18 months old was jumping on the chair facing us. And the mother was getting really frustrated and pinching the baby's legs really hard. And the baby was crying and she was trying to force him to sit down, like being very 
kind of scary in that way. And I remember turning to my son and said, I don't know if I can sit here and watch this. It's so abusive. And, you know, that was kind of the approach that I had. I think I was really judgmental in the beginning of my journey. I'd see mothers mistreating their kids and I would judge them, you know, and just be like, oh, what a mean mom. And, and I'm not, I'm not proud of that. But so, you know, continuing on this flight, something happened inside me. And I had this shift where I said to my daughter who was in the seat in front of us, why don't you switch places with me? And so she came back. I went up front near this mother and I asked her, I said, can I help you? like with anything. And she starts, she burst out in tears because I realized like this poor mom, I'm judging her and I should be maybe offering to help. And she started crying and said, I've been traveling for two days. My husband's in the military. I'm all alone. I'm exhausted. And she said, I'm not normally like this. Hmm. And my heart just like burst open. And it was like this complete shift that I took within myself where I realized how wrong I was to judge. But, you know, I think it's normal when you're, you know, for all of us as human beings to, to be in that place first, but it wasn't modeling what I was living with my kids. You know, I realized that I need to take responsibility for, you know, my own, this is part of my personal growth and my journey too. going from, I don't want my kids to judge others. And so I took responsibility for, I need to change in that way and try to help people. And so it ended up being a wonderful trip. This mother slept for the whole flight home. We took care of her two kids and afterwards she thanked me and I changed right then and there. And so, you know, and my journey now forward, if I see a baby crying and a mother screaming or getting upset, I'll go over and ask the mom, like, do you need help? How can I help you? Because we never know somebody else's story. And the only way to bring peace and love into this world is to treat others with that and to let go of judgment. Um, I know there's situations where <laughs> it's definitely like a do not approach kind of mindset with some people. But as a general rule now, I try to try to be that peace and love. Yeah, that's great. And it's a trick I want to learn because <laughs> yeah, I wish I wish I didn't get so riled up, you know, when I see that happen. And it's funny you mentioned the airplane because I fly with my son. Um, I fly a lot. I, I fly more than one flight a week. And um, and I so often see it in the airports. I've even written songs about it in the, what I've seen in the airports. And yeah, often when I intervene, yeah, I want to come at it from like a place of like compassion and, and gentleness and support. And but often I'm just so fucking mad. I'm just so yeah. mad. Yeah, I definitely still feel that rise up in me um, if I see it <laughs> happen. And I try to shift it. Sometimes I'm in a space of not feeling like the parents approachable to go ask yeah. and offer to help. But yeah. So it's, it's a journey. It's inner work. I'm always trying to, to get there, but that was the one time I just remember really taking responsibility and being like, this is going to feel really bad unless I help somebody. And and also you never know the power of your, your love and compassion and support. Yeah. I, I, I once interrupted a dad who was like kind of really strongly pulling on his son's ear. And, Ooh. um, and again, I would love to have approached it with like compassion and, and, and support, but I was just so fucking mad. I just, yeah, I, yeah, I was just so mad. And so I just intervened <clears throat> and the, 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 the father reacted with like a lot of like defensiveness, which I can't blame him because yeah, I was coming at him with like, you know, wanting to, wanting to do the same thing to him that he was doing to his child, which is not who and how I want to be. I just couldn't help it. And, mm -hmm. uh, but then, yeah, like maybe 30 minutes later, he's sitting a row up and over from me on the airplane. And I just see him sitting there crying 
sitting next to his son, the dad. So it did also like shift me a bit then as a little late, but mm. wow. Yeah. Okay. It's um, a I tough one. Share, yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Tony. No, keep going. Um, I, I wanted to share too, what my other kids were doing. So I thought maybe the people listening Great. would be interested in that. My two is because uh, my daughter, Ivy. Some, somehow when they're like 18 and under, it's like, yeah, well, my, my daughter, my, my third child is 18. Mm -hmm. And so because I think people would be interested in just the diversity and what mm -hmm. they're all doing. And so my, my daughter, Ivy, runs an animal rescue. So she runs mm -hmm. a guinea pig rescue, which I, I'll tell you has not been easy for me to give up all that space in my garage, but <laughs> facilitating her passion. And she's also um, a musician. And so that is a really like awesome journey. She was a personal assistant to the CEO of a crypto company for a while, which for a year, which was a real learning experience for her. And my son, Orion, it's so funny. He was such a tech kid his whole life. Out of all the kids, he was like the one that, you know, I had to grow the most with freedom with technology because he absolutely loved it. Mm -hmm. Minecraft, you name it, everything he's, he loved. And so he's been a gamer. And in the last couple of years, he has shifted toward to coding like mm -hmm. wanting to code games and he's making his own games now. And then out of nowhere, he says to me, and he's also loved cooking and other, you know, hiking and other smaller interests, but always the focus has been on tech. He said, mom, I want to, I don't think I want to learn to play the piano. I'm like, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, sure. Like, of course, of course, you know, I'm over a facilitation problem. Like, Oh, let's get you one. Let's <laughs> do this. So we get a keyboard for him and he's, he's playing like after two days, he's playing really well. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, what's going, you're so good. He's like, mom, it's like gaming. It's like, I've been using both my hands like forever. Like mm -hmm. I know how to do things with both hands really, really well. And I'll, it, it kind of, it, I'm writing an article right now about the fact of how gaming prepares kids for things we're not expecting. Mm -hmm. So whatever parts of the brain <laughs> he has used to multitask with gaming for years, he applies to music now and um, I've had people come over and listen to him. And one person in particular said he's playing at a level that people play after six years. And mm. I don't know how he's doing it now. He's not any different than any other child. It's not like he's a genius prodigy as much mm. as I love my kids. I feel like every mm. kid has this potential, but for yeah. some reason, you know, studies haven't been done about these things. They've always been anti everything and the damage of, of gaming and so forth. And I'll tell you, gaming has really, opened him up to this space where he wants to be a concert pianist now. Now, who would have ever thought that could come of freedom with technology and supporting yeah. a child? And so I just wanted to share that too. That's great. Thank you. He's 15. <laughs> He's 15. Yeah. 15. Yeah. Cool. Chapter 29 is self-worth. I don't know if you remember the specific contents of this chapter, but I do think self-worth is kind of like one of the ultimate goals of a parent is just either building up or at least not eroding the self-worth of our children. Anything you want to say about that chapter or that topic? Well, I think most of us were raised to be people pleasers and turning to other people in our lives to let us know that we were okay or that we were good or that we were approved of. And when somebody was pleased with us, then we could then love ourselves. And so it was this constant looking for validation. I think it was an unfortunate side effect, not intended by those, you know, that loved us, that took care of us and raised us. But it is really where the authoritarian paradigm, when the focus is on behavior, this is a side effect of that, where you're then turning for validation all the everywhere. It took me a long time to, to come away from that. And it wasn't until I had my first child that I was faced with that decision to 
when my mother-in-law told me you can't hold him too much or he's going to manipulate you, I had to make a choice for either for her to approve of me as a mother, which I so wanted so much, Mm -hmm. you know, first time mothers just do, or whether to, to listen and trust my child, which would mean that she would not approve of me. And it was, I can still remember like my heart being ripped out knowing that she disapproved of how I was parenting. However, an amazing thing happened in that space. And I was like, wow, I don't need that anymore. Didn't mm-hmm. realize how addicted to validation and like needing approval from others, even in, you know, at 26, I had no idea. But so when you're not operating from that place of an authoritarian paradigm and you're not forcing a child to please you all the time and rewarding their good behavior and punishing their bad, much of their wholeness stays intact in a way that has also been a wonderful side effect of this life that I was hoping would happen and it has. Uh, the confidence that they have and the ability to be who they are. My kids have always had the freedom to dress any way that they've wanted and to express themselves in any way that they've wanted. And so they've had phases of looking quite wild. You know, my son Devin was really into steampunk for a long time and he would go out of the house all decked out with a, you know, wild steampunk outfits on and, and people would whisper, some of them would whisper and comment. And some, he had no idea or care whether they were, positively responding to him or negatively he would just smile you know and he didn't have any effect one way or the other he just confidently walked through life and all of my kids have been in that space you know all we can do is really reflect on our own life experience in those times if somebody would have whispered and said something many of us would have in high school and you know in general would have just been so insecure like oh my gosh i'm not approved of this is terrible and i need to change who i am and i absolutely love that kids raised this way generally do not have that. They understand and they have compassion. The funny thing is like my daughter Ivy, for a long time, she was into like goth fashion. So she would wear all black and, you know, crazy makeup. And she still looks a little wild. People still stare at age 18, but she's toned down a bit. And when somebody would comment, like most of the time she'd get really positive responses. People would say, I love your outfit, I love your hair. But every once in a while, somebody would say something negative or laugh. And she would say, it's okay, mom. I, I know I look different than everybody else. Of course, they're going to say that. Like she had compassion f- even for the criticism. Mm-hmm. Mind-blowing to me. Compassion yeah. for the criticism and didn't take it on at all. Didn't take it personal. And that, gosh, it was so wonderful. It was healing to me. My kids taught me m- as much as I've ever taught them. Yeah. And the things that really matter, you know, the, the intact self-worth. And I am blown away every day with their confidence in that way. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah, we've we've reviewed over 50 books for this podcast. And I'd say like 99% of the like lessons and techniques and stuff have either, you know, just already reinforced things I already knew or believed or were just like speaking to things I already like, yeah, kind of knew. But one of them that like, didn't come naturally to me at all um, was this idea that you mentioned Alfie Cohn, he speaks to, but really everybody, Janet Lansbury, Dan Siegel, Tina Payne Bryson, they all discourage us praising our children. And this people pleaser thing that you're talking about, it's just, it's, it's just, we don't think about how even just that positive thing where there's no negativity at all, that positive action of just saying like, you're so good at this, you're blah, 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 just like introducing my assessments and my praise of their activities does shift them a little bit from just doing this thing because they love doing it 
into like wanting this affirmation from me. And so, yeah, it's been, that's been one of the most surprising lessons that I've had from, from, from these books that I've read is I don't want my child to be a people pleaser. I don't want him to try and do things because he knows I'll approve or I'll praise him for it. I want him to do things just because it lights him up and it just like brings him joy in life. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And so I remember when my daughter Ivy, you know, she never has ever said to me once, how do I look? Isn't that crazy? Never. Yeah. I, I ask my kids that still. Yeah. And so that are the kind of questions I'll ask her is like, how do you, how do you like your outfit? And she's like, yeah. I love it. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> you know, yeah, cool. and it's not that I don't authentically share, you know, I think coming from your heart and having authenticity being like, that is awesome. And sharing yeah. that it is just an authentic expression. But when you're doing it with the intent to instill something in them, that's when something gets a little off. I still you know, think it's, I still think it's a little off. I mean, not yeah. saying what any other parent should do. And I think especially once kids get to like your kids age, it's like, it's just you being, yeah, you're authentically expressing yourself. But yeah. I think at my son's age where he's three, yes, when they're little. I just don't want to interrupt him. I just want him right. to have intrinsic joy with the thing that he's doing and not be worried about whether I think it's good or bad or whatever. He told yeah. me the other day, he sat down at his drums. He's only been speaking for like two months. <laughs> he sat down at his drum set and he said, I'm not very good at this. And, uh, and I was just like, Oh my God, where'd you get? Like, I was so bummed. Just like, where did you get that? You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I, I don't know where he got that. Yeah. Well, it was his authentic thought in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> But it um, didn't was, come from him. Like he somehow yeah. learned to compare himself with someone else somehow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've had those moments where I've heard a comment or two like that here and there. And I'm wondering where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I have one question for you. So I've personally always felt on the fringe and it seems like a similar experience you've had where, yeah, like the whole world is kind of pushing me towards like normalcy. And I'm kind of like on the, a little bit on the edge of the bell curve in terms of this idea of, of trusting my child. And I'm so glad I've found this kind of like community of people. I think Janet Lansbury is probably my favorite like resource and author, but, but so many of the ones that I've mentioned. Um, and I would say your book and your, even that community, that Facebook group, that's I'm in, and I'm in a lot of moms groups. I wish it was more just parents books groups, but they always end up being moms. I'm in a lot of like parent groups, moms groups. Yours is the only one where I sometimes feel like I'm like in the middle of the bell curve and like, <laughs> like other people are like further over and I'm, and it's really nice. Like, it's really nice to have a community where I feel like, Oh good. There's people who take this even further than I take it. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have any communities or people or authors or anything that are like that for you that just like make you think, oh my God, that's, he's, they are out there or something? Uh, no. no. Not with parenting, no. Yeah. No, no. In other areas well, I, of life, but yeah. Yeah. I haven't encountered it either. Um, okay. So uh, let's see. So let's talk a little bit about like, let's talk a little bit about, you know, food the technology thing, which you mentioned is, is a little bit, um, you know, controversial. Um, at what age, like, d does your household just have like candy sitting around? Uh, no, it never really did. When the kids yeah. were younger, it was something they wanted to buy. 
you know, we go to the store, um, the kids, I would tell depending upon our budget, I would honestly and authentically communicate with them. You guys have 10 bucks each to spend well today, you know, get what mm -hmm. you want. Um, sometimes one of them would buy candy, some would buy popsicles, some would buy things that I'd never expect apples or, you know, yogurt or yeah. bread and things that they love. But, um, I never, I was never like a big candy eater for me. It was more like chips, that kind of stuff is my weakness mm -hmm. cakes. <laughs> But um, yeah, the, we did not have bowls of candy out, no. Yeah. Well, so I have this kind of just like argument that it actually has come up in in the radical parenting, or no, sorry, the radical uh, unschooling. radical unschooling yeah. Facebook group, <laughs> sorry, um, of like, there are products. Yeah, so I'm, this is really a question. It's a bit of an assertion for me, but also my, mainly a question for you. So there are products, whether it's games or candies or whatever, that take these evolutionary like reward systems, whether it's like the sweetness, which is like this, you know, we evolved to need calories and want simple calories for survival when there's a scarcity of calories games to like understanding like your dopamine reward systems and, and those sorts of things. Um, even all the way up to like alcohol and drugs and, and other things, there are these like products out there in the world that, are designed to kind of like manipulate our evolutionary kind of like weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And I get that, especially at like the age your kids are at now, you're just like, okay, you guys can trust you. We can talk about it, all that. But at what age do you feel like it is okay to like let your children be kind of like at the mercy of these products that were designed to capitalize on evolutionary vulnerabilities to make money? Well, from the beginning, we've always had discussions about these kind of things. You know, it's always just organically unfolded as I learned something I would share with the kids. My, I remember having a conversation with my daughter Ivy when she was probably six or seven about a high fructose corn syrup. I think we watched, watched a documentary about it. And she, from that point forward, would check labels and she never bought, wanted to buy anything that had it in it. And so I think giving kids information, kids want to naturally be healthy. I know it sounds crazy for some people to hear because we've been told on the contrary, but in a dynamic with control, you know, children, like I said before, if, if anything's being controlled or limited, kids develop an unnatural relationship with whatever is being controlled or limited. And so their freedom, they want their freedom above all else, and it will override their innate desire for their well-being. And so when that's not part of the equation, kids want to be healthy, too. And when yeah. you give them information about these things... Um, they really are responsive to it. So when they were little, when they were your son's age, yeah, like I would, two or three. you know, I did the grocery shopping, you know, and I, they had freedom with whatever I brought in the house, but I'm the mm -hmm. one that chose what to bring in. Yeah. I wouldn't, you know, I never brought them at age three and said, pick out anything you want, because that would be unrealistic. You didn't fully understand, you know, what that would mean. Um, although if I did bring them to the store, if they wanted something, I would be happy to get it if it was within the budget for them to try. But you wouldn't like let them have caffeine caffeinated sodas at age two or or a glass of a sippy cup of wine if they wanted well, that was something i never had around yeah you know, for me personally so i think if you you know your own personal values need to come into play too yeah you know i took that's another level of growth and responsibility isn't it like where you step in and say my child's going to model what i'm doing and how i'm navigating this world um and i started growing as the kids grew they wanted something you know sweet i, I would say like why don't we try to make the healthy version of that yeah. I started researching, you know, using dates instead of sugar. We never had, you know, I learned all about the dangers of sugar. So as my kids grew, 
I wanted to do what was best for them. And so I grew too. And as I was learning, we shared information together. So it was just And you just kind tried of to at. tried to avoid that ever being a power struggle or a, or yeah. yeah. And and do you feel like that you mostly succeeded the 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 desire for whether it's alcohol at a young age or sweets at a very young age or whatever for, in your mm -hmm. family Th They've never wanted never like a... anything. Yeah, they never wanted anything like that, like alcohol or anything at mm -hmm. a young age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was never like part of their their desire. Um, you know, sugar on Halloween, they'd go trick or treating, and sometimes sometimes the candy would sit there for months. We'd end up throwing it out because they mm -hmm. could eat it any time. So Halloween wasn't like the special novelty kind of situation where it was the only time they got candy. They literally had the freedom, and when we went out to pick out candy if they wanted to. And sometimes they would and other times they wouldn't. So when there's no, you know, taboo put on things and you're giving information, you know, I could sit and eat a whole bag of cookies if I wanted tonight, but I don't want that for a few reasons. And kids are the same, you know, when they're yeah. trusted and given information. Awesome. Well, do you have any closing thoughts for us to wrap up the wrap up the interview? It's been great reading your book. And again, I want to tell people that they can check out uh, Raising Rebels, Parenting Advice from the Girl Your Parents Warned You About uh, on Amazon.com. We'll include the link. Or you can check out everything that, that Dana's done at her website, just D-A-Y-N-A, DanaMartin.com. Uh, anything else you want to share before we close out? Um, no, not really, other than just you know trust your kids and assume positive intent and realize that whenever you're feeling fearful, we want to control and so when we're trying to move toward letting go of control and into more connection, we want to help, you know, rid ourselves of fear. And so there's lots of support out there for that. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to the Radical Parenting Podcast uh, live on 92.9 FM, 89.3 HD3, Denver Open Media. Also, you can find us online at RadicalHonesty.com uh, in the Radical Parenting Podcast section. Um, and anywhere that you listen to podcasts. So thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us, Dana Martin. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm.